right. Good morning, everybody. Glad you guys are here. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new, if this is your first time at Lakeside, maybe it's your first time in a long time, I just want to say welcome. We are glad that you are here. I think it takes an extra bit of courage to walk into a church for the first time. And so uh, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us. It's Valentine's Day weekend. Anybody do anything last night? Anybody do anything special? Anybody get engaged? Just, just checking, you know, it's the second most popular day of the year to get engaged right behind Christmas Eve. And, you know, I, I have a bit of an engagement story for you this morning. It wasn't on Valentine's Day and it wasn't the perfect proposal, which is sort of, a, sort of a story for another time. There were some things that went wrong that night, but it's my story. And so I, I want to tell it to you. My uh, wife and I, Holly, uh, uh, got married 21 years ago, but uh, on June 17th, of 1993. I still remember the date, guys. It's pretty cool, huh? And uh, we packed everything up. I packed my guitar up. We grabbed her best friend, Valerie, and we drove over the hill from San Jose to Santa Cruz, picked up my brother, who was late getting off work, which set off a domino effect of our night. It's okay. I've forgiven him. It's, it's all right. And we drove up the coast uh, towards San Francisco, and somewhere along the way, off Highway 1, we found this rustic beach. And it was just a beautiful night. The fog was starting to kind of roll in a little bit, but the temperature wasn't too bad. But we built a fire. It was nice. And, and we just enjoyed the moment. We could hear the waves crashing onto the shore. And you ever have one of those moments where you just sort of want to freeze it for a little bit? You just want to soak it in. And so we did. It, it was great. And after a little while, uh, my brother and Valerie snuck off and, and just, you know, into the shadows a, a little bit. And they had this little video camera, and they were kind of peeking in on us. And then I pulled my guitar out, and I, I started to play this song. It was a song that I wrote for Holly. It was a song that I actually wrote a year before this, and I sung her the first chorus. And, and I just wanted to find out if she liked it. If she didn't like it, I wasn't going to use it later on. And she liked it, but she said very sternly, don't ever sing that song to me again unless you intend to propose. And so I said, okay. And so I started singing her the song, and I could see it in her eyes. She knew something was going to happen. And, and I played it, and I got to the end of it. It just it sort of tell the story, told the story of our relationship together. And uh, I strummed the last chord, and I didn't ask her to marry me. Uh, not yet. I kind of had to milk the moment for a little bit. I was enjoying this. And, and I, was, I was looking at her, and I used to do this thing. I, I, I would play, and I would drop my pick into the little hole in the guitar. And it was really frustrating, it happened to me all the time, and so I'd have to lift up the guitar and have it, I'd have to shake it out. And so I told her, Holly, I, I, I dropped my pick in my guitar and I really like this pick a lot and I don't want it to fall in the sand, so would you put out your hand? And so I shook the guitar and this little jewelry bag popped out into her hand. And then the next few moments were just a blur. I mean, she pulled out the ring, and I, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And Adam and Val jumped out of the shadows, and we were high-fiving, and we were having a great time. It, it wasn't the, the perfect night. We actually were late for dinner later on that night. But I'll tell you that story. It's a little more embarrassing later on, uh, on another weekend. But it was my proposal. It wasn't all perfect, but it was all ours. In fact, I didn't send somebody else to the beach that night to ask Holly to marry me, I went myself. Because in matters of the heart, you don't send someone else. In the, in the deep love that you have for somebody else, you don't send someone else. In matters of the heart, you always go yourself. 
And so whether it's a proposal or an anniversary or whether you're dealing with the difficult things of marriage or even beyond that with one of your kiddos, it's you that sits in the room when your child is frightened at nighttime to give them comfort. It's you that tells them the bedtime story, that walks them to school on their first day of kindergarten, that teaches them how to drive or how to get their first job. You are there. Or it's you sitting across the table uh, at a restaurant or at a coffee shop with a friend as you pour your heart out to them or they share with you. It's you that goes to the hospital to visit somebody when you deeply love them. When it comes to matters of the heart, you always go yourself. And isn't this what God has done for us? When it came time to show us the full extent of his love, when it came time to rescue us from what we've gotten ourselves into, from our sin, when it came time to restore us and and put us back together, he comes to us himself as God the Son in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is what John was talking about in his gospel when when he said that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He just... He hung out. He knows what it's like to experience life. He knows what it's like to see through your lenses, to feel what you feel, to experience what you are facing in life. And then he goes and he shows us the most incredible I love you of all. He goes to the cross for you and for me. And he's dead and he's buried and he raises from the dead. And now he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And when we do, and when we say yes, he comes to us and he makes his home in us through the Holy Spirit. When it comes to matters of the heart, you always go yourself. And so on this day, on this day where, well, yesterday, but this weekend, where people are saying, I love you, and where people are sending boxes of chocolates. I got some chocolate over here. What section is this, by the way? You guys are pretty snazzy. I know where I'm going to sit. Not against any of the other sections over here, but I got a little chocolate over there. That was pretty snazzy. On this weekend, where people are sending flowers, and they're going out to dinner, and some people are getting engaged, and it's this theme of love, I want to invite you to pause for a moment. And consider God's love for you. I actually want to share a very familiar story. And so you kind of have to get your brain ready for it. You have to have some inner dialogue. Because there's layers to this story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's some around you. Some seat Bibles. We'd love for you to take that. Take it home. Even if you can pull the scriptures up on your phone. There's something about having your own physical copy of the scriptures. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Luke is a gospel. It's in the New Testament of the Bible. There's four gospels. It starts out with Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And right about in the middle of the book of Luke, you have chapter 15. And Jesus is teaching, and he's got an audience, and there's two basic people in the audience, or groups of people. There's the outsiders and the insiders. They're sort of the religious, legalistic, authoritative establishment, kind of the people that run things. And they're there, and they're listening to Jesus teach. And then you have the outsiders, the ones that, you know, kind of wondered, am I ever going to fit in? 
does God still love me? And Jesus teaches about lost things being found. He talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. And he talks about a lost son. Look down in verse 11. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Remember that phrase, wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to his field to feed pigs. And if you know anything about ancient Judaism, this was probably a low point in this young man's life. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out Go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here Jesus tells probably 
one of his most familiar stories. It's right up there with the Good Samaritan. In fact, I believe that people all around the world, even if they've never read Luke chapter 15, have probably heard the story of the lost son, more notably known as the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. It means to have or give something on a lavish scale. And so here you have a father with two sons, and one of them comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, which basically meant I wish you were already dead. Something that is pretty harsh for any son to say to any father at any time in history. And remarkably, the father gives it to him. He could have beaten him. He could have cut him off. In that day and age, he probably would have got away with murder if he wanted to. And I have to wonder what Jesus' followers, his audience, is thinking at this point in time. Are you kidding me? What father would react like that? There is no justice in that. But unbelievably, this father lets him go. And there's no strings attached. I don't think the father's naive. I think the father knows exactly what's going to happen. And sooner or later, he hits bottom. And when he does, the scriptures say that he came to his senses, which actually is a hope and a prayer of every parent, of every child, in every generation. You know, your parents prayed for you at one time, or they hoped for you that you would come to your senses. You just forget about that, right? And now you're praying for your kids, your teenagers, your 20-somethings, or whatever age they may be. God, I just wish they would come to their senses. And then he comes home. And his father is waiting, he's watching, he's looking, he's longing. How many sleepless nights did he spend awake? What was the anxiety like for a father that longed for his child to come home? How many times did he look off into the distance and see somebody coming down the road only for them to get closer and then realize that it wasn't his son? And then in an act where he loses all propriety, it was something that historically, at that point in time, growing men just didn't do. He ran to his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him. And he wanted everybody in that village to know that this was his son. That was his identity. So he gives him a robe, and he gives him a ring, and he gives him sandals. How in the world does a father react like that when his son has treated him with such contempt. I don't know. I mean, this is a story. It's a parable and Jesus is teaching. But what what happens in a relationship to twist it like that, where a son can view the father in that light? And how does a father do that? I, I, I think, and I'm not sure, but I, I think that the reason why the story goes the way that it does is because this father in this story somehow decided before that ever happened long ago before his child was even born that this is exactly how he was going to react that he knew one day his boy would leave and his boy would treat him with that type of hatred 
that type of animosity, that type of foolishness, that type of ungratefulness. But he decided that this was just going to be the type of character that he had. This was the type of love that he would love his boy with. The older son is different, but also the same. Somehow he begins to view his dad in the wrong light, and he lets his heart grow cold, and he turns legalistic. And legalistic will fill the soul every single day of the week. And so Jesus is teaching this parable. And in a parable, you want your audience to get into the story. You want them to locate themselves in the story. And so this is a story of God's love. It's a story of the audience. And and who are they? Are they the older brother? Are they the younger brother? But more than anything else, I believe that in this story, he wants his audience to see through the lenses of their Father in heaven. He wants them to see themselves through the Father's eyes. Can you imagine being the Father? You love your boys, but you won't manipulate or control them. It's just not how your love works. You have this love that is completely open-handed. And that's a risk you take. It's a risk that you take knowing that you're going to receive pain from having that type of love. And this younger son of yours comes foolishly, but you let him go. Can you imagine being the father? You have this older son, and and, and he's twisted the relationship. And instead of being a dad that will provide everything whenever he needs it, he views you as a boss or even worse, a slave master. He says, I've been slaving for you all these years. And he turns this relationship of love into this legalistic nightmare. Can you imagine being the father? Now, most of you know what it's like to be the younger son, right? I mean, you know where you've been, and you know what you deserve, and you've wandered off, and, and maybe you've come home, or maybe you're in the process. Maybe, maybe you're out there in that distant land still. Maybe you haven't hit bottom yet. But something's going on, and you know it's just not quite right, and you know that there's home, and, and, and you're, you're trying to figure out where that is. Most of us sort of know what it might be like to be the younger brother. And, and some of us know what it's like to be the older brother. You know, this idea that, that, you know, we were the ones that stayed home. We crossed every T. We dotted every I. We were the responsible ones when the ones that made a mess of things come home and get celebrated over. I mean, how, how much justice is in that? And it burns us up. And somehow along the way, our hearts have gotten a little bit hard and a little bit cold. And we've become this poster of religiosity, the very thing that we never intended to become. The very thing that is so distasteful in our world when people think of Christians. And you wonder, how did I get here? But more than anything else, I think Jesus wants us to see the father's eyes can you imagine what it must have been like in 1669 the great painter rembrandt imagined this when he was a young man he painted this scene but now he's old and two years before he dies he paints one of his greatest works on a giant canvas an oil painting and it's the return of the prodigal son 
1983, a scholar and a theologian and a teacher, a professor, a pastor named Henry Noun uh, was burnt out. He was a professor at Harvard, and he had traveled around the world teaching, and he was just exhausted, and he was trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. And so he resigned from his position at Harvard, and he went to France, and he lived in the Arch community among the mentally challenged to try to recover some sense of himself. And while he was there, he saw on an office door this painting, a poster of this painting that Rembrandt did, and it captivated his attention. He couldn't stop thinking about it. And for three years, he thought about this painting. And then in 1986, he got to go to St. Petersburg, Russia. And he ended up spending two days sitting in front of this painting, just taking notes and thinking about this story that Jesus told in this painting that Rembrandt painted. Several years later, in 1992, he gathered all of his notes together and all of his thoughts. And he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I want to read for you a a section in his book. Noun writes, The heart of the father burns with immense desire to bring his children home. How much would he have liked to pull them back with his fatherly authority so that they wouldn't get hurt? But his love is too great to, to do any of that. He cannot force, constrain, push, or pull. He offers freedom to reject that love or love in return. As father, he wants his children to be free to love, and that freedom includes the possibility of their leaving home and going to a distant country and losing everything. The father's heart knows all the pain that will come from that choice. He also desires that those who stay home enjoy his presence and experience his affection. But here again, he wants only to offer a love that can be freely received. He suffers beyond telling when his children honor him only with lip service while their hearts are far from him. Two sons, in their own way, both rejecting the father's love. At the end of the book, Henry Noun writes, I am the prodigal son. Every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And so when we perform, when we create these shadow versions of ourselves, when we seek the approval of others at all costs, when we cloak ourselves in the shame from our past, when we live in the bondage of perfectionism, We don't find the unconditional love that we're searching for. You see, the the only real authority that God chooses to exercise in his relationship with us is the authority of love. And that authority comes from the deep pain in him that put him on the cross. But he opens his arms And he says over and over again, come home. And his love is perfect. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And so his love is comprehensive. There is judgment. There is mercy. And so on this day, when people all around the world are saying, I love you. Do you know this love? If you've gone to a distant country 
Do you remember this love, that there is this love waiting for you to come home? If you're here and you've been here and you're that older brother and things have grown cold for for you, will you allow this love to warm your heart this morning? It's this love that he invites us into, a love that is extravagant. It exceeds the limits of reason. It's beyond moderation. It's extremely excessive and elaborate. In a word, it is prodigal. His love is prodigal because as prodigal as we can be, God can feed us every single time. That's why when Tim Keller, who most people call the modern-day C.S. Lewis, wrote his reflections on this story, he called it the prodigal God. Because God's love is more scandalous than our sin. Do you know this love? It's the love that Jesus was talking about, and the Apostle John recorded his words in John 15 when he said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It was the love that the Ephesians needed to hear about when Paul wrote to them. And he said, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. It was the love that the old fisherman, Peter, reflected back on when he was old and he was writing the early church. He had been on a roller coaster in his life. He knew the ups and the downs. He knew what it was like to be humble and to be restored. He spent time with Jesus on a beach being restored for some things that he had gone through. And so he writes to the early church, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you this morning, no matter where you're at in your journey. You guys know John 3.16. Do you know 1 John 3.16? John is at the end of his life, and he's writing to the early church, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so maybe you're the younger brother. Maybe you're the older brother. Remarkably, what the father does is he shows acceptance. He shows forgiveness. He begins to do a work of restoration. And unbelievably, he celebrates four things that every single one of us need. We need full acceptance. As I often say, we need somebody who will love us right where we are and not where we shall be because none of us are yet as we shall be. And we need forgiveness. We need to be restored. Around Lakeside, we call it transformation. We need somebody to take the broken things in our lives and restore them. To create in us something new, something that was always meant to be. And every one of us, even if you're the person when they, you go out to a restaurant on your birthday and everybody starts singing and it's the worst environment imaginable for you because you don't want all eyes on you, every single one of us at some point in time needs 
to be celebrated. And this is what God wants to do for each one of us. He wants to sing over us, to celebrate over us. So do you know this love? Six and a half months after Holly and I sat on a beach together, we stood in a church together. And there were friends there, and there were families there, and, and everybody was dressed up, and it was, it was the moment where we were going to say, I do. And remarkably, I, 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 bet, I bet you won't believe this, but remarkably, neither myself nor Holly sent somebody else to stand in. Can you believe it? Because when it comes to the deep love that we have for one another, when it comes to matters of the heart, you always go yourself. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thanks that you come to us with arms open wide and you say, I love you, come home. God, you're always available, you're always, you're always here, even if we are in some distant place. God, at any moment we can turn to you. And so I pray this morning that around this room that there would be those that would turn to you. Maybe for the first time or maybe people would be turning back to you to engage your love this morning. Father, we thank you that your love never changes. You're not a God that's one way today and another way tomorrow. You don't change like the shifting shadows, but you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're grateful for that. Thanks for your love. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.